Amen. You did. Thanks, man. Well, good morning. It's good to be back. Uh, for those of you uh, who may not have known, my wife and I had an opportunity to spend a couple of weeks in Israel and immersing ourselves in the story from, from literally Sinai to Jerusalem we, and everything in between. Uh, it was a, a wonderful couple of weeks, uh, both for the head, you know, just sort of learning different things, seeing things in uh, different perspectives, the heart. Uh, you know, remember several different places, but sitting in, you know, what was one of the possible sites of, of Mount Sinai and just being completely silent and, and imagining what that would be like to be Elijah, the still small voice, or, you know, Israel meeting their God there. It's just really moving. And of course, relationally, Lisa and I had a great time connecting, connecting with the other people in our group, and uh, it was a real blessing. We're grateful, grateful for your prayers, too, uh, travel back and forth, health, all of that. We did have a violent virus go through our group, and we were spared, so uh, we're grateful for that. Sorry for the other people, um, but uh, here we are, and we get to look into the life of David. Uh, we've been going through First Samuel and uh, now we are coming to the transition point. Michael last week took you through chapter 15 uh, excellently. I listened to that uh, this week, and, and you saw uh, the, the kingdom being torn, as it were, from Saul, uh, Saul being rejected. And so here in chapter 16, we're going to begin what uh, happens throughout the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. You've got the demise of Saul, the people's king, and, and the rise of David, the, uh, the king of the Lord, the Lord's king, the one that he anointed, the one that is after his own heart. Just a word or two about David before we dive in and, and sort of look at this initial passage. Uh, David looms large over all of the scriptures. His, uh, you know, he's quoted so many times in the New Testament, the Old Testament. He's written 73 of our Psalms. Uh, he is definitely uh, on the Mount Rushmore of kind of most important people in the Old Testament in terms of looking to Christ. You know, Jesus sits on the throne of David, all of these different things, which uh, makes it a little bit of a challenge for us because we, we hear the stories, we've, we've, saw, we've seen the, the children's Bible story books, David and Goliath and all of these different things, and so we have to make sure that we come to the text fresh and, and hear the story as the, the narrator is telling us. Uh, Robert Alter, who is a Jewish commentator, he says, the story of David is probably the greatest single narrative representative in antiquity of a human life evolving by slow stages through times, shape and altered uh, by the pressures of political life, public institutions, family, the impulse of the body, the spirit, the eventual sad decay of the flesh. It's a brilliant example of the Bible's narrative economy, 
its ability to define characters and etch revelatory dialogue in a few telling strokes. It's a, it's a wonderful story. And, and it's evoked all sorts of things. I mean, some of you can think of Michelangelo's uh, statue of the David, uh, you know, where he is this 17-foot-high statue with these enormous hands and just perfectly proportioned, all of these different things. You know, in some senses, you think about, uh, you know, the, 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 the height of humanity, but that's not totally uh, the whole story, at least not from a biblical standpoint. Uh, the story of David, this is Eugene Peterson talking more pastorally, said, immerses us in a reality that embraces the entire range of, of humanness, stretching from the deep interior of our souls to the farthest reaches of our imagination. No other biblical story has this sort of range, uh, showing the many dimensions of height, depth, breadth of human experience as a person comes alive before God, even his brokenness. Uh, as, as an instance of humanity itself, Peterson goes on to say, David isn't much. He has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent. He was an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. Uh, but David's importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but it's in his experience of and his witness to God, and it's in the designs that God had for him. You know, God is the one that chose him, not because he was great. And this is the story of the scriptures, right? Why did God choose Israel? Because they were a, a mighty, most powerful nation? No, I, I chose you because you were small. And, and I chose you because you were little. And I chose you because you were enslaved. And I chose you because by demonstrating what I do in you, you see it's all of God and none of you. And that's the story of David. And we're going to meet that as we walk through, uh, and especially we're going to meet it as it leads us to Christ. Because David, as I've already alluded to, does prepare us in some ways like, like very few other characters in the Old Testament for the ministry of Jesus. And hopefully today, as we just walk through this uh, opening narrative, you, you'll see that, that David helps us to see Jesus and David helps us through Jesus to see ourselves, uh, to understand what it is to be connected to Christ, to, to find our life in Him, and to enjoy the benefits of being anointed uh, by the Spirit with Christ. That passage that you read a little bit earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So let's walk through uh, chapter 16. Uh, look through it, uh, just walk through it through this lens of being overlooked, overseen, and then overflowing, uh, and, and see if we can't gain a little bit uh, fuller perspective. And I do think that, that for some of us, we have to step back and, and really understand this from not everything that we might know about David, uh, but from the way that the author begins to tell us the story. So first of all, as I mentioned, chapter 15, the kingdom 
is uh, Saul is rejected, and, and Samuel, of course, is grieved. I mean, he had had hopes for Saul, and he had sought to mentor him and lead him along, but, but Saul's heart was uh, not after the Lord. Saul, Saul was raising monuments to himself. Saul was taking for himself things that were to be devoted to God. Uh, Saul was uh, unwilling to step in and to portray the hand of justice that God wanted him to portray. Uh, and so God says, I, I've rejected you from being king, uh, and I am choosing a man after my own heart. But that doesn't mean that he's choosing somebody who is, uh, looms large uh, in terms of the society of that day. We, we see that the, the chapter begins, Saul is still grieving, Samuel is still grieving over Saul. God says to him, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? He doesn't rebuke him for grieving, but he does rebuke him in a sense for not getting on with the, the story, not getting on with the future call. How long, Samuel, are you going to keep grieving? It, you know, I'm still on the throne. I still have a plan. I understand your disappointment with Saul, but now it's time to get up and to go and to anoint this one that I have chosen for myself. I think that there is a good reminder to us in our own broken places in life that grieving is okay, but we, it does have a time limit. Uh, and at some point, God comes to us and says, I'm still on the throne. There, there are still things that, that I see and am calling you to and want you to move into these spaces. And for Samuel, it was to go to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Um, now, this was a moment, two things about this, a moment that's a little bit fraught because Samuel is the kingmaker. And the king breaker. I mean, he had been the instrument that God used to, to take the kingdom away from Saul. Uh, but he had also anointed Saul, and now he's going to be doing this again with David. So everybody's a little bit on edge. Even Samuel recognizes that this, this could be kind of a dangerous thing. And so God says, you're going to go make a sacrifice just go make a sacrifice, and, and I will take it from there. But he goes to the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, many of you know the Bible. Uh, you, you know that David is of the rod of Jesse, and, and Jesus is often by him talked about that. And so we know this name, Jesse, and we certainly know the character David. But this is where we have to go back and realize that Jesse was nobody. He, he did not, he, he was not wealthy. Uh, he was not landed aristocracy, uh, especially in contrast to Saul. Remember, Saul was the son of Kish, who was wealthy, had things named after him. He was landed aristocracy. He was somebody. Jesse is nobody. And, and David is the nobody of nobodies. Uh, because he is the eighth son, uh, he is the runt of the litter, uh, literally when, you know, Samuel says, do you not have any other sons? Uh, you know, 
Jesse says, well, there's the, our translation gives us the youngest, but it's actually littlest, and it's got sort of this pejorative sense to us. There's the runt, you know, he's the one that's out in the fields. So David is, is nobody. So even the number seven, you know, numbers in Hebrew don't just simply give us uh, quantitative values, they paint a picture. So here's the complete number of sons, seven, uh, and David's outside of that. David is nobody. Uh, and, and Samuel is just trying to figure this out because, all right, here we are. You tell me to go to Jesse's. I'm at Jesse's. Surely this Eliab, this, this really tall one, and height is a big thing in these two chapters. You got Eliab, who's a giant. You got Saul, who is a giant. And you've got Goliath, who is a giant. But God says, I'm not looking at, at height. I, I'm looking for somebody different. I see differently than the way that you see things. But this is really our first connection in the story. Uh, because what we begin to understand is that God is attuned to those who are overlooked. Uh, God is attuned to those who are forgotten. God is attuned to those who are weak in the world's eyes, who have nothing, uh, but they mean something very different to God. Just to drive this home a little bit further, it's interesting, if you look at Psalm 27, uh, a psalm of David, he, he talks about his own experience. Um, and again, he's, he's living out this life with God. He says, don't hide your face from me. Do not turn away your servant in anger. You have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. David was not even esteemed in his own family. Uh, we see it with Jesse. We see it in chapter 17 with his brothers who speak derisively of him. David is a nobody. Overlooked in the world's eyes, but seen by God. This is good news. This is good news because my guess is... Uh, and I would, I would stake a lot on this. A lot of us come in feeling overlooked. We feel like we're not the smartest. Uh, we're not the strongest. Uh, we're getting a little bit older. Uh, our society doesn't know what to do with the elderly and the aging. We, we put them away. Or maybe we're that awkward teenager or we're struggling socially. We, we know what it's like to be overlooked. We know what it's like to struggle with our health and not be the strongest. We, we know these things because this is the human experience. But I love the fact that the Bible engages us and, and tells us this story through this lens and says, if you feel overlooked... You have good company. And it's not just David, because David in this way points us forward to Jesus, does he not? I mean, Jesus, who, who was born of, of a young virgin, 
His parentage was always in question. You know, we don't even know who your father is, the religious leaders say to him in John chapter 8. He was born in Bethlehem, but he essentially came from Nazareth, this out-of-the-way town. He had no form or comeliness that we should admire him, says the prophet. He was overlooked in a world of Herod the Great, in a world of, you know, mighty and strong Caiaphas and high priests and all of that. He was nothing. He was overlooked, and yet he was the one that God was going to tell his great story to. What an encouragement for you and for me as we come in overlooked to know that that might not be the end of the story. Because God indeed, and this is really the second point, He has a different economy. He has a different way of seeing things. He has a different way of counting things. He sees what we don't. Samuel, you guys know this story if you're familiar with the Scriptures. Uh, Samuel is, is, uh, okay, I'm here, I'm going to anoint. So he looks on Eliab, verse 6, and he thinks, surely the Lord's anointed is before him because he sees his height. He sees uh, his physical prowess. Maybe he's a good-looking guy, uh, and he thinks this is it. But, but God speaks to him, and he says, no, that's, that's not how I recognize people. I don't recognize people by what's on the outside. I, I recognize people by what's going on in the heart. You know, are, are they a people who pursue me, who hunger and thirst after me? Not a people who get it all right, incidentally. I mean, we know that that's true uh, because uh, we see the life of David. I, I think, what, but what we see in the life of David is that pursuit and even when he is wrong, even when he fails, even when he is abased before man and before the Lord, he continues to seek God in repentance, and uh, he continues to hunger and thirst after Yahweh, this one who is his living water. But that's what God is looking for. That's what God sees, and he always sees. You know, that is actually one of his names, the, the God who sees. So, in the Old Testament, we meet Hagar, uh, this woman who finds herself in a very unfortunate situation with Abraham. She's pushed out. She's uh, persecuted by Sarai, and she just wants to die underneath this tree. But God comes to her, and he sees her, and he says, I am a God who sees. I, I recognize, not as the world recognizes, but I see what I see and what I value, and, and we can rest in that. That is a, a question for us, you know, just in terms of our own pursuit, in terms of, you know, what we are resting on. You know, we, we want to be seen. Uh, many of us focus on being seen in the eyes of the world, uh, by our accomplishments and, uh, you know, by our feats of strength or our intelligentsia or whatever. David Brooks famously calls these our, our resume values. Uh, but, but God sees much more the eulogy values, the, the characteristics of heart uh, that, that form us. So, you know, part of the question is what are you pursuing? You know, are, are you pursuing filling out your resume, uh, making sure that it glitters, 
uh, in terms of, you know, the world and, and modern times, or are, are you pursuing, you know, the, the legacy? What, what will last? What will be said of you as a character, a person of character, when finally you pass away? Uh, the second thing, just in terms of this overseeing, God sees, he recognizes differently, but he also prepares. You know, so here's David, and, and he's nothing in the eyes of the world. He's nothing in the eyes of his family, but he's prepared as God wants him prepared. Uh, we're told here that he's out in the sheep. You know, David will say in the Psalms, you've taken me from tending the sheep. Uh, we, we know through Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He, he's seeing the world through this. And, and this has prepared him. We'll see uh, in a couple of weeks when we go through chapter 17 that it prepared him to fight. It prepared him with courage to, to face the lion and to face the bear and to face Goliath. Uh, it prepared him to lead. He knew when to be in this pasture and when we needed to leave that pasture and go to this pasture. Uh, he, he learned that kind of discernment. He, he learned a compassion to care for, to tend the lambs. All of the things that David would need to be a leader, to be a king, God was preparing him for. And, and this is part of what we learn to rest in. You know, I think some of the questions that get asked are, are do we trust that God is, is valuing us? Do we trust that? Because we know it's going to be through His lens. Do we, do we really value? And it's hard. I mean, I know it's hard as a young person. You, you want to be liked. And sometimes when you are engaged with your friends or in the community, I mean, being liked means pursuing certain way of life that may or may not be immoral, but it may or may not be the things that God is calling you to. Uh, and do we trust that God sees us? Do we trust that God is preparing us? Like sometimes, maybe you've been like me, you're in these seasons of life and you're just not sure. Like what, what is God doing here? It, it seems like I'm just spinning my wheels, wasting my time. I, I wonder how often David thought that out in the fields, keeping his sheep. You know, isn't there something more substantial that I could be doing? But God knew exactly what he was doing with David, and he was preparing him for exactly that um, that role. Again, we, we see this in the life of Jesus. Uh, he, he comes from an out-of-the-way place. He, he's got no name, no form or comeliness. He, he's placed, you know, as it were, on, on the board of the world at, at a, a very interesting time. You've got, you know, Judea and Rome and, and all of these different things. And, and here God brings his king. You know, and the, the Scriptures tells us it, it was the fullness of time. It was exactly the right time, but how could it be the right time? You know, this, this seems to be the most uh, unwise time to bring your king and to place your king, but God knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly how he was going to get the word out. He knew exactly uh, the path that Jesus was going to have to walk, that it would eventually lead him to the cross. And, and what about a cross? 
You know, couldn't there be a more noble way for him to die? Did he have to die at all? Is God's plan really the best plan? But this is what we're reminded is that God knows and he sees. And and we can trust him because he is trustworthy with all of the details of our life. And this is the really good news because in the fullness of time, Jesus does come and Jesus does die and Jesus does rise again. And with that, those of us who have received that share in his anointing. You know, this is a passage about David's anointing. Literally, the word anointing means to smear. Uh, most likely olive oil, which was the sort of currency of the land. Uh, he was smeared with this olive oil, and it was a symbol of the fact that he held the office. And we see here in verses 13 and 14 that in addition to the anointing, the Spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. And then verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit or a a disquieting spirit from the Lord tormented him. There is a, a realness to what God provides David. And, and part of what we need to recognize is that this same anointing, God's people continue to share in. In the Old Testament, it was prophets and it was uh, priests and, and kings who were anointed That all comes to a head with Jesus, who is the prophet, the priest, the king. He is the Messiah, which literally means anointed, the Christ. He he is the one that fulfills all of that. But then, out of that, it flows to us. That's why I included that passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So all of these things that you're seeing happening to David, he's anointed. The spirit is rushing on him. He's beginning to operate in that space. Those are things that we share through Christ. Now what does that look like? It's fascinating here in verses 14 to 23 is that we see David in Saul's service. There are a couple of things that stand out to us just from an understanding. This evil spirit, uh, this disquieting spirit comes on Saul. Note that it's from the Lord. Uh, The Lord sends this to, to Saul. Not that the Lord is the author of evil, but he allows Saul to reap the whirlwind, so to speak, of his choices, to feel the consequences of that. Uh, And Saul, as a symbol of this kingdom being taken away, uh, he loses, as it were, the, the power of his anointing. But note then also that he calls David into his service. Uh, It's his servants that point out that there's this guy, uh, son of Jesse, I'm in verse 18 now, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and says, send me David, who is your son, who is with the sheep. Now there's 
couple of, you know, one, one question that people have when they come to chapter 16 and 17, like David has just gone from being nobody to being this man of valor. Like what's, what's going on with that? And then when we come to chapter 17, David has this interaction with Saul and it appears that Saul doesn't really know who David is. You know, he's asking him all these questions. A couple of ways to look at it. One, this could be the, the servant just sort of prophesying, knowing things about David, uh, and it works out chronologically. Um, and when Dave, Saul is asking David questions, he could be focusing on the parentage of David, because you notice he always says, whose son are you? It's the end of chapter 17. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. Uh, it could also be that there's some arrangement here uh, that you know, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the author is, is highlighting what the Spirit of Saul, or the Spirit of the Lord who leaves Saul, looks like in contrast to when the Spirit of the Lord comes on David. And one of the things that's so interesting to me here is that the first thing that we are told of the anointed of the Lord is that he is a healer. He is one who brings peace into the disquiet. He is the one who can quell the evil spirit. He is the one who, who brings a shalom that is lacking. And this is totally in line with what we see in the scriptures. You know, when Malachi is prophesying about the one who will come in righteousness, what does he tell us? He will rise with healing in his wings. You know, the, the symbol of his authority will be the peace and the shalom that he brings. I love how Tolkien captures this in uh, The Return of the King when he's talking about Aragorn, you know, coming out of the, the wilderness and he's there in the city and the old lady, she says, the hands of the king will be the hands of a healer. Uh, and, and it's by his healing that he will be known. And that's what we see here with David. David's a man of peace. He's a man of shalom. Now, we think about it just from a personal and psychological standpoint. You know, part of it is David knows what it's like to be ostracized. David knows what it's like to be put upon. David knows what it's like to be the lowest. So for him to enter into these spaces, there's a humility about him. There's, there's not a pride. There's not something that wants to uh, continue to smash down those uh, who are, are hurting. It, it's, uh, you know, if you continue on in the story, chapter 22, the people that gather to David... Uh, David departed, escaped to the cave of Adullam, uh, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Isn't that a wonderful picture of the Lord's anointed? Isn't that a wonderful picture of our Savior? You know, who gathered to Jesus when he walked the face of the earth? You know, it wasn't the mighty, it wasn't the strong. 
You know, they, they were actually threatened by him because he was coming into to their space in a way that put them on edge, but it was the hurting. It was the tax collector, the sinner. It was those who were ostracized. It was those who were lame or who were blind, who were poor in spirit. I, these were the people that flocked to Jesus. And this is one of the things that we begin to understand about the Lord's anointing. Not, not only does he recognize, you know, a, a different sort of value, not only does he equip us, but he equips us to move into spaces that the world doesn't love. You know, remember Saul in, uh, in verse 15, or chapter 15, sorry. Chapter 15, I think it's actually verse uh, 6 or 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fatted calves and the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. That's the story of the world, right? The, the world likes the strong, the beautiful, but all that is worthless they devote to destruction. That's not the story of the anointed. And you and I are the anointed. So I ask you, what kind of people flock to you? What, what kind of people find shalom and rest at your table? Uh, what does your neighbor's, you know, your interaction with your neighbors look like, or your friends at school, or uh, how do we think about these? How do we think about this as a church? Like, what does it look like for us to be the anointed of God in Grand Rapids? You know, how do we engage with the, all the different folks, or as the, the message of the gospel goes out into the world, what does that look like for us? Now, again, I, I say these things, yes, they challenge us, and they force us to ask questions about what are our values, you know, are we, are we drinking from the kind of cisterns that God provides, or are, are we seeking after broken cisterns that cannot hold water? But I say it also with the recognition that all that God asks for, He provides, he has anointed you. You are in union with your Savior who is the one. He, he is the greater David. He is the one who sees in this way. And you have been given the Holy Spirit, you know, anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. So the message is, yes, know what it is that God puts before us, but then go be who you are. As God's people, be who you are to a hurting world. This is the story of David, and we're just getting started. I mean, there's going to be all sorts of things. There's Goliath, and there's on the run from Saul, and there's cutting off tassels, and all sorts of different things that are coming up in the story. But this is the start, a nobody who's set apart for a work, a work that is going to challenge the world that's not going to be focused on his military might, but is going to be a work that centers around and rests in peace and shalom. Maybe a little C.S. Lewis story can bring this home for us. 
some of you know the great divorce. Uh, in it, there's this narrator who takes a little trip from, you know, hell to heaven. Basically, he has a guide who I think is George McDonald, uh, and uh, he is uh, guiding him along the way. And at one point, they come into, they encounter this, I mean, this ravishingly beautiful woman. Uh, but uh, she's, you know, you can't even describe it. She's not beautiful in the way that we sometimes think of beauty. She's just radiating all of this, and she's accompanied by... Um, She's accompanied by sort of these angelic figures. She's got this huge train of, of kids that are all around her. Animals are flocking after her. And the, the narrator is just struck by the wonder of this person. He figures she must be somebody really important. Maybe she's like the mother of Jesus. Uh, is, it, is it her? I whispered to the guide. And he says, no, it's not anybody like that. It's someone that you'll never heard of. Her name is, was Sarah Smith when she lived on earth. She lived at Golders Green. Uh, well, she, she seems to be a person of particular importance. Uh, and the guide says, yeah, she is. She's one of the great ones. But you have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are all of these children that are at her side? They, you know, who are they? Well, they're her sons and her daughters. Well, she must have had a very large family then. Yes, indeed, she had a large family. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Wasn't that a bit hard on their parents? <laughs> no, they, there are those that steal other people's children. But her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. In fact, few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but more true to their own wives. Sarah Smith, she's one of the great ones. And maybe you recognize today that, that this is you, Sarah Smith, John Smith. You, know, you, you occupy a, a little place in the eyes of the world. But that's not the end of the story. Because if you've surrendered your heart and faith to the Lord Jesus, you are united to Him and anointed. And the beauty the beauty that comes upon you is so great, so great. The power that you have in the ordinary places of life to, to bring the gospel it is so incredible. And that's our invitation. We're just starting with David, but he's a runt. He's out in the fields with the sheep, but he's the one that the Lord, uh, the Lord selects. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the story. We thank you for its promise, its provision. We thank you for the surprising nature of it. We're so used to hearing about David, the giant slayer. Um, but Lord, that's, that's not really who he is. 
And what we realize when we come to David is just how great you are and how you can take the weak things of this world to defeat the strong, the foolish things to confound the wise. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live into this story, to see things as 